welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. What a week for immigration and immigration decisions. There were lots of things available to top off the week, but ultimately I had to turn to the Fifth Circuit's decision in the DACA case, upholding a lower court's finding that DACA is illegal, 10 years after its implementation, and effect on a million people, but nevertheless remanding in a manner that will permit the program to continue a bit in the short term. So file those applications, attorneys. Also, Congress needs to fix this. Of note as well, Supreme Court season is upon us again. Could have sworn it just ended. More on that in a bit. Complicated, interesting cases for the fall term of the podcast. Here they are. Starting off, Munoz v. Department of State et al., published by the Ninth Circuit on October 5th, 2022. Don't always do the cases arising in district court, as you know, but this one's special on the doctrine of consular non-reviewability. Maybe I should start looking at them closer. I believe my tweet on the case might have gone, dare I say it, viral. It's also quite long and complicated, so here's what's up. Mr. Asensio Cordero is married to Ms. Munoz, a United States citizen. We know that Mr. Asensio Cordero is outside the United States because the Department of State denied his immigrant visa application filed based on his marriage to Ms. Munoz. The Department of State didn't say why, they just denied, which the Department of State often gets away with based on a series of cases that have instituted the Doctrine of Consular Non-Reviewability. That judge-made doctrine has made it exceptionally difficult, if not impossible, to challenge Department of State decisions denying visas to non-citizens, even when the non-citizens are the spouses of U.S. citizens. But as the Ninth Circuit explains, quote, As with many judicially created rules, consular non-reviewability admits an exception, end quote. That's based mainly on Justice Kennedy's concurrence in Kerry v. Dinn, 
Oh, how I miss those concurrences. Quote, where the denial of a visa affects the fundamental rights of a U.S. citizen, judicial review of the visa decision is permitted if the government fails to provide a facially legitimate and bona fide reason for denying the visa. Or if, despite the government's proffer of a facially legitimate and bona fide reason, the petitioner makes an affirmative showing that the denial was made in bad faith. End quote. So two exceptions there. But no easy task to prove, especially when the action took place abroad, the U.S. government has all the cards, and discovery is generally not permitted. There's a three-step process to all of it in the Ninth Circuit, and you should read this decision for how to apply it in other cases. Here's how it matters in this case. Looks like Mr. Asensio Cordero lived in the U.S. without authorization for many years, and he received an I-601A waiver of that inadmissibility based on the hardship his U.S. citizen wife would suffer without him. They have a child together, and while a U.S. citizen child isn't a qualifying relative for I-601A purposes, it can be considered if the child's hardship will cause hardship to the qualifying U.S. citizen parent. Like I said, USCIS granted that waiver here, a big win in and of itself. But under the crazy world that is immigration law, because Mr. Asensio Cordero entered the U.S. without authorization to begin with, he couldn't adjust to lawful permanent resident status in the United States. He needed to leave the U.S. and come back in through consular processing with an immigrant visa. That would have made him inadmissible, hence the waiver, and hence this unfortunate case. Waiver in hand, Mr. Asensio Cordero departed the U.S. for El Salvador to attend his interview, which should have really then resulted in his re-entry with an immigrant visa and lawful permanent resident status. But wouldn't you know it, he has tattoos. And I guess that's why the Department of State denied the visa at the consulate? Who knows? All the officer said was that the Department of State, and really one consulate officer sitting in one consulate in El Salvador, believed Mr. Asensio Cordero sought to enter the U.S. solely or principally to engage in unlawful activity. Notwithstanding his U.S. citizen wife and child, of course, the consulate said Mr. Asensio Cordero must remain exiled abroad forever, I guess. Even a request by U.S. Congresswoman Judy Chu couldn't get the Department of State to explain its basis for inadmissibility in more detail. Good work, counsel, by the way. Seems like it was just the tattoos. So Mr. Asensio Cordero and his wife, Ms. Munoz, sued. Ultimately, the district court judge granted summary judgment for the U.S. government based on the doctrine of consular non-reviewability, finding that the consulate's citation to INA Section 212A3AII, that vague inadmissibility provision about coming to the U.S. to commit unspecified criminal activity, barred the federal judge from doing anything further with the omnipotent Department of State. The judge so held, notwithstanding an eventual expert report submitted, explaining that the tattoos had no connection to MS-13 or gangs. Consular non-reviewability means just that. And even though this is a long case, it's actually pretty interesting, so I'll just touch on the procedural history a bit more. Mr. Asensio Cordero's claims were dismissed at the onset, but Ms. Munoz, as a United States citizen, survived the motion to dismiss and did not lose until the summary judgment stage. In the middle of all that, the government had to give some discovery, during which time Oil asserted for the first time that the consular officer believed Mr. Asensio Cordero, quote, a member of a known criminal organization, end quote. Suspicions confirmed, MS-13 in particular. 
but the Department of State refused to comply with many of the judge-mandated discovery orders beyond that. Can you imagine any other party doing that? Oil on the Department's behalf filed a motion for summary judgment based on the Doctrine of Consular Non-Reviewability, and the District Court ultimately agreed. To be fair, the Department of State did eventually comply with some of the discovery requirements, it seems, filing some sort of affidavit with its filing of a motion for summary judgment. But even there, the Department refuses to say much. And what they did ultimately deign to say probably cost tens of thousands of dollars to the plaintiffs in this case in litigation fees. Again, the district court ultimately granted summary judgment based on the doctrine. But luckily for Mr. Asensio Cordero and Ms. Munoz and my Twitter account, the Ninth Circuit did not agree. As an initial matter, relying on Justice Kennedy's concurrence in Din and actually Justice Kennedy's decision in Obergefell, the Ninth Circuit explained that Ms. Munoz has a constitutional interest in her husband's immigration to the U.S. that she can potentially invoke in federal court. Indeed, quote, the right to marry is a fundamental right inherent in the liberty of the person and subject to protection under the due process clause, end quote, even if they are same sex. Not the case here, of course the case in Obergefell. Hopefully Justice Kennedy's former law clerk and replacement, Justice Kavanaugh, agrees enough to uphold his mentor's legacy when Obergefell is inevitably challenged in the coming years. But I digress. Quote, in addition to having a fundamental liberty interest in their marriage, U.S. citizens also possess a liberty interest in residing in their country of citizenship. End quote. Now that's a quote. The reason the Ninth Circuit explained is, quote, because it conditions enjoyment of one fundamental right, marriage, on the sacrifice of another, residing in one's country of citizenship. End quote. How about that? So Ms. Munoz has the right. But did the consulate provide a facially legitimate and bona fide reason for denying her husband's visa? Looks like the vagaries of this inadmissibility provision actually turned out to be a bit of a double-edged sword here, because at least for this specific provision at INA section 212A3AII, where no actual specific conduct is referenced by the statute, quote, the government can satisfy its DIN burden only if the record contains information that provides a facial connection to the consular's belief that Mr. Asensio Cordero sought to enter the United States to engage solely, principally, or incidentally in any other unlawful activity, end quote. All the Department of State had here were tattoos and a vague report from an unidentified individual affiliated with the Department of State saying that Mr. Asensio Cordero was a member of MS-13. But my goodness, it still sufficed, at least in combination with that affidavit that the department submitted at summary judgment in federal court. The Ninth Circuit deemed this inadmissibility finding unreviewable and a sufficiently bona fide and legitimate reason. What a doctrine consular non-reviewability is. Why have I wasted like half the episode talking about this case then? Because there's a big however. All of these explanations, as you may have gathered, happened well after the denial at the consulate. That led the Ninth Circuit to agree that, quote, the government's failure to provide them with the specific factual basis of the denial at the time of the denial means that the proffered information is insufficient to satisfy the facially legitimate and bona fide reason requirement, end quote, now. Emphasis by the court. Indeed, quote, it is a long-standing due process requirement that the government provide any required notice in a timely manner, end quote. 
The Ninth Circuit has never tangled with the immigration agencies, I see. After all, quote, in DIN, Justice Kennedy contemplated that petitioners will use the information contained at the notice of a visa denial to mount a challenge to the visa denial, end quote. Or restated, how can a non-citizen establish bad faith for a visa denial if they're not even told why the visa is being denied with sufficient specificity in a timely manner? The basest of constitutional protections. The court believed this requirement of timeliness also required of the regulations and even the Department of State's own FAM and remanded to the district court judge, finding that because of the Department of State's timeliness violation, the doctrine of consular non-reviewability could not apply which means that, quote, the district court may look behind the government's decision, end quote. That's a big deal. Judge Lee dissented. A bit of a nuanced and strange holding, and I'm not sure how the ultimate result will play out or what oil will do next. But any weakness in the doctrine of consular non-reviewability is probably a good thing for non-citizens. And this actually seems to be quite the Achilles heel, no matter how the court got there. The district court will be reviewing what the Department of State found in an immigrant visa denial. I conclude by noting that consulate decisions like this have probably gone the other way hundreds if not thousands of times, often never making it into federal court, and almost never surviving the doctrine of consular non-reviewability when they do. Congratulations, Eric Lee and Alan Diamante, for plaintiffs. And follow the podcast on Twitter, of course. And that is Munoz v. the Department of State et al. Moving on to two Fifth Circuit decisions. First, Cordero Chavez v. Garland, published by the 5th on October 4th, 2022. This case is about credibility and Convention Against Torture protection. Ms. Cordero Chavez is from El Salvador and entered the United States without authorization in July 2014. She was detained and expressed a fear of persecution from her abusive ex-boyfriend, who was a member of MS-13. A DHS officer actually didn't believe that she had a credible fear of persecution, but an immigration judge reversed that no-credible-fear finding on appeal, as IJs are authorized to do, and Ms. Cordero Chavez was placed in removal proceedings for adjudication of her claims on the merits. Ms. Cordero Chavez got an attorney, but despite informing the immigration judge that she'd be pursuing asylum and withholding of removal under the INA, the attorney never mentioned cat protection. Seems kind of silly, and really, perhaps it shouldn't even be a separate box on the I-589. But it is, and Ms. Cordero Chavez didn't check that separate box for cat protection, even though she responded in the affirmative to the question in the I-589 asking about a fear of torture. As we'll see, the failure to check a box will have big consequences here. Kind of how Mr. Patel's apparent checking of a U.S. citizen box on a DMV form had huge consequences there and for the entire country of non-citizens. Oh, the lives affected in immigration by box checking. Turning first to asylum and withholding of removal under the INA, the IJ ultimately denied, believing Ms. Cordero Chavez inconsistent on a host of issues, including the severity of her ex-boyfriend's abuse and his connection to Salvadoran police officers, among other things. The BIA affirmed, and also refused to consider Ms. Cordero Chavez's eligibility for cat protection, which as we all know, need not fall simply with an adverse credibility finding and also refused to consider Ms. Cordero Chavez's eligibility for cat protection because she failed to check the box. 
The Fifth Circuit affirmed on both counts. First on credibility. The Fifth Circuit took pains to remind that in that circuit, IJs may rely on any inconsistency to support an adverse credibility finding. Nevertheless, Ms. Cordero Chavez, and thus the court, focused on one inconsistency finding in particular. As compared to her credible fear interview, quote, at her removal hearing, her account of the abuse was much more severe and specific, end quote. Rather than simply saying that her boyfriend had pushed and sexually assaulted her, she testified to have been sexually assaulted seven or eight times and slashed with a knife. The Fifth Circuit deemed this sufficiently inconsistent to support an adverse credibility finding and deny relief. Even though Ms. Cordero Chavez explained that this and other inconsistencies were, quote, due to a combination of confusion, nervousness, and miscommunication while interviewing with an asylum officer, end quote, the Fifth Circuit also reminded that, quote, an IJ is not required to accept a petitioner's explanation for inconsistencies in her story, end quote. As we know, though, even with an adverse credibility finding, cat protection might still be obtainable, if otherwise established by the record evidence that isn't dependent on the non-citizen's testimony. Exceedingly tough to get, but it is there, and it has resulted in remands on the pod, if only for the agency's failure to recognize this rule. But like the BIA, the Fifth Circuit held that Ms. Cordero Chavez's literal response that she feared torture in El Salvador was not sufficient. Notwithstanding a 2004 decision from the Fifth Circuit, Edward V. Ashcroft, which actually seems quite on point in Ms. Cordero Chavez's favor. The difference from that case, said the Fifth Circuit, was that Ms. Cordero Chavez twice failed to check the cat box, and her attorney expressly said that Ms. Cordero Chavez sought only asylum and withholding of removal. It seems like there was no cat box on the I-589 when the form was filed in 2000 in the Edward case. In any event to the Fifth Circuit, the latter statement, the statement from the attorney stating only that Ms. Cordero Chavez sought asylum and withholding of removal, was apparently important to distinguish. Be careful, counsels. And so, Ms. Cordero Chavez lost her case. But check out this issue, unadjudicated, of course. In a footnote, the Fifth Circuit also mentions how Ms. Cordero Chavez, quote, attempts to explain the discrepancies by arguing that, as a domestic abuse victim, she suffers from memory lapses. But she did not make this argument before the BIA, and so we will not consider it, end quote. But it's quite the argument, and one which received some sympathy recently by the First Circuit in Rivera Medrano v. Garland, episode 122. Keep making the argument, even at the IJ level and early if you can, to stave off inconsistency findings for individuals who have suffered mental trauma. And while we're with the Fifth Circuit, of course... I simply must note that the Supreme Court has granted certiorari in Santo Zaccaria v. Garland, episode 90 of the podcast, on that crazy rule that the Fifth Circuit has that holds essentially that if the BIA messes up and you want to challenge it at the circuit court level, you need to file a motion to reconsider with the BIA first, telling the BIA of all the ways it messed up before you can challenge the decision in the circuit court. It's a rule I've lamented often on the podcast, and Santos Zaccaria appears to be a great factual case to challenge this important issue. Good luck, counsel. And that is Cordero Chavez v. Garland.
Next is Nufan v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on October 4th, 2022. Back-to-back decisions from relatively new judge Stuart Duncan. But this one, a win for non-citizens. And I'll be quick. Mr. Nenefan is an asylum seeker from Cameroon. Like many of late, he is an Anglophone Cameroonian, essentially an English speaker, who based his asylum claim on his, quote, membership in the Southern Cameroon National Council, an organization that advocates for the independence of Southern Cameroon, end quote. He also claimed that he had already suffered persecution by the Cameroonian military. The immigration judge, however, deemed Mr. Nenefan not credible and so denied his asylum and withholding of removal claim. And indeed, it looks like the IJ then did what the law requires. The IJ then, quote, specifically addressed the country conditions articles and reports, end quote, deeming them insufficient to warrant cat protection. Seems like Mr. Nenefan checked the box. Don't get me wrong, many IJ and circuits have held otherwise recently when it comes to Anglophone Cameroonians, but that's not really the point here. The point is that the BIA then messed up. After upholding the IJ's adverse credibility finding, the BIA, quote, upheld the denial of the respondent's request for protection under CAT because the respondent's claim is based on the same testimony the IJ found not credible, and the respondent points to no other objective evidence to support his claim, end quote. Due to that quote, the Fifth Circuit remanded, holding that the BIA, seemingly unlike the IJ, quote, failed to consider the country condition evidence with respect to his CAT claim, end quote. This is so because, in the Fifth Circuit, as with many circuits, I believe, quote, cat claims are distinct from asylum and withholding of removal claims and should receive separate analytical attention. And the regulation contains no exception for cases of adverse credibility determinations, end quote. Although neither IJs nor the BIA must discuss every piece of evidence to survive Fifth Circuit review, quote, The BIA's statement here raises too great a concern that the BIA did not adequately consider the evidence before it, end quote. The BIA's statement certainly makes it seem like the BIA, quote, denied the existence of evidence that clearly exists in the record, end quote. And so the Fifth Circuit remanded. Godspeed, Mr. Nadidafan, and all the Anglophone Cameroonians like you. And that is Nadidafan v. Garland. Turning now to a trio of interesting losses for non-citizens out of the First Circuit. The first is Cante Lopez v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on October 5th, 2022. This case is about withholding of removal, but really, it's about exhaustion. Mr. Cante Lopez is an asylum seeker from Guatemala who was placed in removal proceedings the day after he entered the U.S. in 2014. The immigration judge found Mr. Cante Lopez credible, but denied based on a finding that he failed to meet his legal burden for asylum and related relief. In his appeal to the BIA, Mr. Cante Lopez made known his challenge to the IJ's finding that the harm he had suffered wasn't on account of a protected ground. He made these arguments himself, it appears, pro se, and then filed a two-page legal brief by himself. Mr. Cante Lopez appears to have done the best he could, and argued that indeed, the harm he had suffered and feared was on account of his membership in a family group, and that his family group was cognizable as a particular social group under asylum law. Only after the BIA's summary denial without opinion did Mr. Conte Lopez obtain counsel and file a petition for review with the First Circuit, who made better arguments. 
One of those arguments challenged the IJ's finding that the harm Mr. Conte Lopez suffered and feared wasn't severe enough to warrant withholding a removal under the INA. But to the First Circuit, although Mr. Conte Lopez's pro se notice of appeal to the BIA appeared to somewhat raise the issue, his two-page pro se legal brief did not. That brief only made a nexus argument. For this reason, the First Circuit held that Mr. Conte Lopez could not now challenge the finding that his harm suffered and feared was insufficiently severe before the First Circuit. True, if the BIA had issued a written decision and addressed the issue, the First Circuit and most if not all circuits would have then been able to review what the BIA held, irrespective of what Mr. Conte Lopez argued in his papers, pro se. But here, the BIA affirmed the IJ without opinion, likely because Mr. Conte Lopez was a pro se non-attorney and he didn't bring the best legal arguments in his two-page legal brief on the complicated issue of nexus and particular social group. And in the First Circuit, as well as apparently other circuits, quote, a failure to exhaust is fatal in cases where the BIA has affirmed the IJ without opinion, end quote. Accordingly, even if the IJ erred in finding that the harm Mr. Conte Lopez suffered and feared was insufficient to warrant withholding of removal, the First Circuit wouldn't get into it because a pro se Mr. Conte Lopez hadn't sufficiently made the legal argument to the BIA. And that is Conte Lopez v. Garland. Next is Dorsey v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on October 3rd, 2022. This case is about due process and prejudice. Mr. Dorsey is from Haiti and moved to the United States as an LPR at four years old in the year 2000. Quote, After periods of homelessness, Mr. Dorsey eventually moved in with his now former girlfriend with whom he has two U.S. citizen children. End quote. Shortly after turning 18, though, quote, he committed serious criminal acts, end quote, and he was ultimately convicted of carrying a firearm without a license in violation of Massachusetts General Law Chapter 269, Section 10A. Didn't help that he, quote, had posted a video on social media of himself brandishing a firearm and claiming to have shot at an occupied residence on New Year's Eve 2016 after he was involved in a fight at that residence, end quote. Although he may have been bluffing, a jury acquitted him and the prosecution dropped the more serious firearms and other charges. He was sentenced to two years in prison. DHS detained him and charged him as removable as an LPR convicted of violating a firearms offense under INA Section 237A2C. Deemed removable, pro se. He was found prima facie eligible for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA and for asylum, and Mr. Dorsey applied for both by himself. Representing himself at his final hearing, it appears from detention, he failed to put on much of a case. Quote, he told the IJ that his father was supposed to come with his uncle and that he didn't know where they were. End quote. Same with the mother of his children. Representing himself without witnesses, Mr. Dorsey quote, testified primarily about his U.S. citizen children, his history with unemployment and homelessness, his community service, the circumstances of his firearm conviction, and the classes he took in prison. End quote. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the IJ deemed this insufficient in light of Mr. Dorsey's criminal history. While there is no hardship showing required for this form of relief, LPR cancellation of removal, the IJ denied as a matter of discretion, and then denied asylum on the merits. That video I mentioned also didn't help as a matter of discretion, nor did a Facebook post that appeared to proclaim Mr. Dorsey's association with the Zoe Pound gang. Check your social media, everybody. 
Mr. Dorsey appealed to the BIA pro se and did not succeed. But counsel came in for briefing, submitting affidavits from Mr. Dorsey's various family members and contacts in the U.S., and raising for the first time that Mr. Dorsey hadn't received proper notice of his merits hearing. See, and it's a bit confusing, but what appears to have happened was that the IG told Mr. Dorsey at a prior hearing that the final hearing would be December 4th, and then sent notice to his family's house for a December 4th individual hearing. But then the court later sent notice to the house for a December 19th hearing. Mr. Dorsey appeared for the December 19th hearing. It appears, after all, that he was detained and didn't really have a choice. But he claims that he never actually received notice in prison or at the house. Instead, he claimed that he was told ex parte at the first hearing by the IJ of the December 19th hearing. In any event, it seems like his witnesses were confused, appeared at the court on December 4th, but did not appear on December 19th. What a mess. But the BIA rejected this lack of notice claim, and even considering the declarations submitted for the first time on appeal from the family members, deemed them insufficient to change the discretionary denial. The U.S. government deported Mr. Dorsey to Haiti in 2021, a country where the president was recently assassinated and for which the Biden administration recently redesignated TPS based on a finding that it is not safe for people to return to that country. At the First Circuit, there were some potential jurisdictional hurdles, which might explain why Mr. Dorsey focused heavily on the lack of notice arguments before the court through counsel. But like the BIA, the First Circuit dismissed the argument, holding that even if a due process violation had occurred, Mr. Dorsey hadn't shown that he was prejudiced by it. In short, to the first, the BIA considered the affidavits submitted for the first time on appeal, I guess under the guise of a motion to remand, and deemed them insufficient. And quote, there is no legal requirement that the BIA also evaluate or presume that Mr. Dorsey's proposed witnesses would have testified to matters beyond what their declarations said they would, end quote. Make sure those affidavits you submit are detailed. Boiled down, the standard for prejudice is this. Whatever it is, the new evidence or proper notice or an attorney, whatever the non-citizen is claiming was needed to further due process, would it have been, quote, likely to have affected the outcome of proceedings, end quote. The First Circuit didn't think that the testimony of these many family members would have affected the ultimate denial, because in the end, the affidavits were apparently too general, and didn't compel a conclusion that they outweighed Mr. Dorsey's negative criminal history for purposes of discretion. Quote, the declarations merely repeat broadly Mr. Dorsey's testimony, and state generally that he is a good guy, end quote. Ipso facto, no prejudice in the fact that they couldn't appear at the final hearing. Tough. Mr. Dorsey, therefore, will remain in Haiti. Judge Lippis had much to say in dissent. Judge Lippis wrote the opposite decision in dissent in detail. Regarding prejudice, Judge Lippis explained that, quote, there is inherent value in live testimony, particularly such testimony in support of a pro se litigant who has no one else to speak on his behalf. Indeed, it is a fundamental premise of our adversarial legal system that in-person testimony is the most effective way of getting at the truth of a matter, including through a fact finder's assessment of witness credibility, end quote. This was particularly the case here in light of the fact that that Facebook post about the gang might have actually been misunderstood and not have been about gang activity after all. To conclude, Judge Lippis states, quote, 
Now it is my colleagues, not the BIA, who definitively conclude that in-person testimony would have made no difference to the IJ in balancing Mr. Dorsey's positive and negative factors. My colleagues are saying, in effect, that in-person character testimony by people who know a petitioner best is irrelevant to immigration proceedings. I cannot overstate my dismay at this misguided and damaging suggestion. End quote. But not all was lost for Judge Lippis this week, as he actually authored that Ninth Circuit decision that we started off with, while on assignment from the first to the ninth. Thank you to Sang Yu Kim for pointing that out. Always happy to have you on the best coast, Judge Lippes. Come back anytime. And that is Dorsey v. Garland. Finishing up with the First Circuit's big week, we have Reyes Batista v. Garland, published on October 7th, 2022. This decision is about former INA Section 212C relief, of all things. Mr. Reyes Batista is from the Dominican Republic, and he became an LPR in 1990 at 14 years old. Six years later, at the age of 20, he was convicted of a controlled substance offense in New York and was detained in Louisiana because that's what immigration officials decided to do. He was placed in pre-IRIRA deportation proceedings and sought the very forgiving INA Section 212C relief, which is essentially a second chance for LPRs and lacked any hardship requirement. Why Congress decided to take this relief away in 1996 is anyone's guess. I'm sure you have a guess. But Section 212C did still have a seven-year domicile in the U.S. requirement, and in 1996, Mr. Reyes-Batista didn't have it. So he was denied relief and removed to the Dominican Republic in 1996. He re-entered the U.S. without authorization, and he appears to have lived in the U.S. for many years. Made a big mistake in 2015, though, when he was charged with involvement in a tax fraud scheme in Connecticut Federal District Court. But get this. During that whole process, the U.S. government brought and then dropped another charge for criminal illegal reentry. And it dropped it because it seems that it believed that the 1996 proceedings had been prejudiced by a fundamental error. Seems like Mr. Reyes-Batista was eligible for 212C relief in 1996 after all, because his LPR mother's domicile could be imputed upon him, thereby satisfying the seven-year requirement. This stuff gets so complicated. Looks like that argument all goes back to Rosario v. INS from the Second Circuit in 1992. Good work, Federal Criminal Defense Counsel. Convicted of the fraud charge, though, from 2015, remember the tax stuff, DHS did not seek to reinstate that prior final order of deportation, but rather brought lots of removability charges through the filing of a new notice to appear. DHS almost surely did that because it suspected that old deportation order might not hold up in court, and because by filing an NTA rather than reopening the deportation order or trying to reinstate it, they could prevent Mr. Reyes-Batista from applying for 212C relief, particularly because now DHS could charge Mr. Reyes-Batista not as an LPR, but as an applicant for admission subject to the INA Section 212 grounds of inadmissibility. 212C is really complicated, and if anyone was at the Boise conference this past week, all of this might sound familiar. That is, the importance of DHS's charging decisions. And do check out that wonderful Immigration Justice Idaho Fall Conference next year. It really is great, as is Boise. 
Anyway, Mr. Reyes-Batista wasn't too happy about this and asked the judge to grant him a Section 212C waiver, nunc pro tunc. The IJ and the BIA denied. And the First Circuit affirmed. Don't worry, Mom, I'm getting to nunc pro tunc in just a minute. Now true, with some qualifications, quote, Section 212C relief remains available to eligible persons convicted of an offense before IRIRA's effective date in April 1997, end quote. However, the First Circuit deemed Mr. Reyes-Batista ineligible because the relief is only available to LPRs, and Mr. Reyes-Batista is no longer an LPR. He hasn't been one since 1996. Hence the nunc pro request, said Mr. Reyes-Batista, quote, Nunc pro tunc, meaning now for then, refers to the power of an adjudication to treat something done now, typically a court order, as effective as of an earlier date, end quote. In this case, Mr. Reyes-Batista wanted it to be effective before he lost his LPR status in 1996. First Circuit didn't bite. Even if nunc pro tunc relief is available for such things in the first, and the court isn't sure. The BIA and the IJ's authority, quote, to grant non-protunc permission in deportation or exclusion proceedings is limited and has been extended only to instances where all established grounds for deportability or inadmissibility are eliminated, end quote. So heck, at least courts have that authority, and I guess that's something. And that comes from the BIA's 1996 decision, matter of Garcia Linares. Mr. Reyes-Batista, however, couldn't meet that standard because at a minimum, even without his 1996 crime, he was inadmissible now under INA Section 212A9CIII due to his unauthorized entry into the United States after being deported. Remember, he's not being treated as an LPR anymore. He's being treated as an applicant for admission. So a Section 212C grant would still not wipe away all of his current removability. So to the court, non-protonc relief wasn't warranted. Undoubtedly aware of the difficulty of his arguments, Mr. Reyes-Batista also argued that DHS should have been equitably stopped from initiating removal proceedings against him in 2015 when his deportation proceedings in 96 were so flawed by the IJ's failure to make Mr. Reyes-Batista aware of his potential Section 212C eligibility. But at a minimum, to bring this very difficult argument, a non-citizen must show affirmative U.S. government misconduct. And far from that, the hearing transcript from 1996 showed that the IJ and former INS were inquiring, but may have simply missed the issue, and that Mr. Reyes-Batista's own attorney appears to have conceded his non-eligibility for Section 212C relief. Plus, that Second Circuit Rosario decision didn't bind in the Fifth Circuit where Mr. Reyes-Batista's deportation proceedings were held in 1996, and the Supreme Court overruled Rosario in Holder v. Martinez Gutierrez in 2012, meaning that you can't impute the parent's time for 212C relief now, even if you could in the Second Circuit in 1992. Did I mention that 212C relief gets complicated? For all of these reasons, Mr. Reyes-Batista didn't win his case. And that is Reyes-Batista v. Garland. Which brings us to Matter of Bador, published by the BIA. Thought I forgot about you, BIA, didn't you? Don't worry, you're always near and dear to my heart. This decision is about INA Section 237A1H waivers. Not so common of a podcast attendee. Let's begin. 
Mr. Bador is from Israel and received conditional LPR status through his marriage to a U.S. citizen in 2009. As required of conditional LPR status, Mr. Bador and his wife jointly filed an I-751 petition just before the two years of conditional status expired, petitioning USCIS to make Mr. Bador a full-fledged lawful permanent resident, which essentially requires a second showing again two years later that the marriage was legitimate at inception. Or as the BIA put it, quote, to provide immigration authorities time to examine the bona fides of a marriage more fully, Section 216 of the INA created a two-year conditional permanent resident status for those who sought to obtain permanent resident status based on a marriage to a U.S. citizen, end quote. Problem is that Mr. Bador's spouse withdrew the joint petition before USCIS adjudicated it, so USCIS deemed the petition abandoned, as the regulations would require. There are exceptions to joint filing I-751s, though. People do, after all, for example, get divorced from valid marriages. One exception is at INA Section 216C4B, permitting the conditional LPR to file an I-751 petition on his or her own based on a showing that the marriage was entered into in good faith, but that it just didn't work out. Or, as the BIA put it, quote, a marriage is considered to have been entered into good faith if the parties intended to establish a life together at the time they were married, end quote. That's fair enough. Mr. Bador filed his unilateral petition for a waiver of the joint filing requirement after USCIS deemed the joint petition withdrawn. But USCIS ultimately denied Mr. Bador's unilateral petition, believing that the marriage was invalid from inception, a sham marriage, if you will. That meant Mr. Bader was placed in removal proceedings for an immigration judge to determine, de novo and without any deference to USCIS, whether the marriage was valid at inception such that Mr. Bader's conditional status should be removed by the immigration judge. I'll pause here to note that things might have gotten hairier in immigration court if Mr. Bader hadn't first filed that unilateral petition after USCIS deemed the joint petition unavailable. That's an issue for another day, because Mr. Bador did file that unilateral petition, which again, USCIS denied, on the merits. Mr. Bader was placed in removal proceedings and conceded that he was removable as charged under INA Section 237A1DI for being a conditional permanent resident whose status has been terminated by USCIS. As is his right, he sought for the IJ to remove the condition on the IJ's own, based on a finding that the marriage was bona fide. He testified extensively to this fact under oath in court. But DHS apparently had some evidence of its own, and eventually, Mr. Bader withdrew his request for the IJ to adjudicate the unilateral I-751, and instead sought a fraud waiver under INA Section 237A1H. Not a great look, because he's essentially conceding fraud. He actually literally conceded marriage fraud. But he also knew that a Section 237A1H waiver is much easier to get than our other waivers, and that there isn't a hardship requirement, and that the waiver can waive an LPR's commission of fraud at the time of receiving LPR status if warranted as a matter of discretion. The waiver thereby permits an LPR to keep his green card so long as the LPR has a U.S. citizen or LPR spouse, parent, or child. Unsure who Mr. Bador's qualifying relative is, but whatever. 
To be very clear, hypothetically, a Section 237A1H waiver would, for example, waive Section 237A1A removability for an LPR being removable at the time of adjusting to LPR status because he had been inadmissible for fraud under INA Section 212A6CI. A Section 237A1H waiver will totally waive that for an LPR. But not for conditional permanent residence, said the immigration judge. The IJ concluded that, quote, the fraud waiver could not waive the respondent's removability under Section 237A1DI and only waive the charge of removability under Section 237A1A, end quote. In this decision, the BIA agreed. As it turns out, quote, the circumstances of the respondent's case are nearly identical to those in matter of Gawaran, end quote, published by the BIA in 1995. Under that pre-IRIRA law, the BIA said you can't do what Mr. Badur is trying to do here. To the BIA, it is simply a bridge too far to permit a non-citizen to use Section 237A1H, quote, to waive the joint filing requirement under Section 216, end quote. Section 216 has its own express framework for removing the conditional status of LPRs based on a showing that the marriage was legitimate and a Section 237A1H waiver isn't one of them. Seems like the Ninth Circuit actually took the opposite position a bit in Vasquez v. Holder from 2010, but Mr. Bador is not in the Ninth. But I am. The BIA doesn't find Vasquez persuasive or binding in this case that arises in the Second Circuit. Also, the BIA reads Vasquez narrowly as only applying to joint I-751 petitions, not unilateral I-751 applications to waive the joint filing requirement like the one Mr. Bador ultimately filed here. To conclude, quote, Sections 237A1H and 216C4B apply in diametrically opposed circumstances. The former applies where fraud is present, while the latter only applies where fraud is absent. End quote. Long story short, Mr. Bador did not succeed. But all of this has me thinking. In explaining the good faith marriage requirement that a conditional lawful permanent resident must show to remove the condition and become a full-fledged LPR, the BIA cites the regulations to hold that, quote, to determine whether an applicant for this waiver entered into a marriage in good faith. An adjudicator must consider evidence relating to the amount of commitment by both parties to the marital relationship. Note what's not mentioned love, children, traditional marriages. People can be committed to a marital relationship and have a good faith marriage, even if they marry for other reasons or have a non traditional marriage, so long as the central reason wasn't to circumvent U.S. immigration laws. Don't get me wrong. It's an uncomfortable and at times dangerous position to take in a USCIS interview. But when the facts require it, make the argument and remind USCIS that non-traditional marriages and arrangements don't necessarily equate to marriage fraud. It's 2022, y'all. And that is Matter of Bador. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. 
And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.